Hi, everybody. My name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my In Conversation With series, which is part of my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm discovering and covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders about how we live and how we should lead, lead our lives. So I am so thrilled to introduce my next guest. He is Dr. Irvin Laszlo. He's one of the icons of the new science and the new thought movement. He's a system theorist and a philosopher. He's the author of an extraordinary 64 books, the editor of World Futures, the Journal of New Paradigm Research. He's the founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and president of the think tank, the Club of Budapest. He's received three peace prizes in various countries. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize two years in a row, and for at least 20 years, He's been a personal hero of mine. He's also got a new book called The Upshift, The Path to Healing and Evolution on Planet Earth. And we're here to talk about what we should be doing now, because we know we're in crisis on every front from energy, economics, politics, and the like. You name it, we're all collapsing. So I wanna take a deep dive with Irvin and to figure out where we go from here and what opportunity this collapse affords us. Hi, Irvin, it's wonderful to be here with you. Hi, Lynn, it's absolutely my pleasure. You are one of my heroes. It's all your work on the new science and the intention is just essential. It's wonderful to talk with you. Wonderful, thank you. So you call our current climate uh, crisis a bifurcation and uh, uh, you know, a fork in the road. So let's talk about this according to systems theory. I was really fascinated in your book to look at this and why it's such an opportunity. So what do you mean by a bifurcation? Well, it, it refers to the trajectory of the evolution of a system. Yes, it is usually used in the, terms of the system sciences. You know, a, a, a complex systems usually doesn't stay put. It can move back and forth. It can be stationary in that sense that it doesn't really move out of a trajectory, but it usually follows a, a path. And mm -hmm. that path, it can be smooth and linear, or it can change very rapidly. It can break off, or it can leap forward. But mm -hmm. when it changes, it's no longer what it was. Then one can talk about a bifurcation. And the interesting, important thing about a bifurcation process, a point is that it is indetermined. It's indeterminate in the short run, in the, in the immediate uh, conditions. Yes. Which way a system evolves, through the old way or through the new way, or perhaps any other way that is coming up, is not determined by the past of the system, is not determined by anything external to the system. Many of these things can be equal, can give you equal chances, equal possibilities. But what decides is what has been known in, in, in sciences as an internal small quantum fluctuations, a small little bit that changes. And very often then that small change produces a large effect, the so-called butterfly effect, you know, 
a butterfly flapping its wings in California, we can create a, a storm in Mongolia. You know, the idea is that any small change, if the system is in a sensitive state, which a bifurcation is a sensitive state, then it can blow up, it can nucleate, and then it can change the entire behavior in the system. Obviously, it changes the future of the system and its environment. So we're really talking, yes, we're very much talking about quantum effects and uh, and consciousness, the role of consciousness, because we've seen with quantum effects that consciousness is essential to uh, taking the potential of something and collapsing, collapsing it into a particular state. So I was fascinated by this one statistic you had in your book about if we carry on from here, and if we look at just trying to patch up what's broken, you I think you mentioned that if all 180 form, formally constitution, constituted nation states of the world follow the path of just those 40 rich countries like the US, the UK, most of Europe, the global, the global overshoot, you said, would be at least 100%. And we'd need to colonize another planet. That's pretty sobering statistic there. Um, so what are you mainly talking about? Are you talking about just climate change or how are you seeing this? Well, uh, for a system to evolve, a human community or a species to evolve, it has to have conditions that are conducive to meeting its requirements. And these requirements are, are largely known. They are physical requirements, physical, chemical, they're biological. They're also psychological and social, obviously. So if we are not moving within the limits of what is sustainable, then the system as such will collapse, will move down, will disintegrate to its next stable elements. Ultimately, it's all stable because it, it go back to the chemical level and then the physical chemical level. But life is only possible if it stays within the limits of what is viable. And these limits are, uh, as I said, they are all not only in terms of physical food and shelter and, and reproduction. They also limits to what we can live with, what we can tolerate limits of well-being or bad being actually, not well-being, limits of violence, limits of fear, and limits of the, of the finer resources, the psychological resources that we need for our life. So obviously we are not in a hurry in our attempt to just serve our own interests. I'm talking about businesses as well as states, political units. And in that, in that great effort just to maintain our immediate uh, interests and, and grow it, we have been neglecting the interests or the viability of systems around us, of other people, of nature, of, of the whole wide world, of the, of, of the sphere of life. And we have created more and more artificial units, artificial stands. Surviving, yes. Creating it, make it possible to satisfy our immediate needs, yes. But in the long run, creating a system that's not, cannot maintain itself, cannot maintain itself in a condition in which we can live. 
or and certainly not to mention even thrive or flourish. So all if, of this if you were to guess, if you were to guess, how long do you think that we have before everything just totally collapses? At the minimum of one month. <laughs> maximum five to ten years, I would say. Right. Now, for me, I'm, I look at things oftentimes through the lens of the new science and the problems with the old scientific story. And to me, it really started with the Newtonian mindset of describing the world as separate objects operating according to fixed laws in time and space, and just defining the world in terms of separation. But probably the biggest hand in all of this and the mindset you talk about and identify is the Darwinian mindset. And even though he never said survival of the fittest, essentially his, his theory embraced that whole idea. And as you say in your book, it is the justifying principle for some horrendous movements in the world. You know, I think of colonialism, I think of, of Hitler who loved Darwin. And that Darwinian mindset to my mind seems to permeate every aspect of our everyday from businesses to our neighborhoods. You know, we have competition is just built into our lives from the time we're children. So how do we start making that shift? What do you see happening that would really make a substantive difference when it comes to, let's say that, that um, mindset in business, because that is so much the aspect of business and now has got to the point where, I mean, it's so invaded politics, let's take the US, that you know, every aspect of the system is so corrupted by industrialization and making money that all of the government bodies are now corrupt. The FDA, the CDC, they're all populated by drug company, ex-drug company executives. All politicians are getting paid by drug companies and other industries, the gun manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we start moving away from this if it so permeates business and finance and politics? It is being challenged. You are challenging it and you are not alone. I'm not alone in this. Luckily, we are being put to the test. You know, there's been a nicely saying by Dr. Johnson in his memoirs. Uh, uh, he said, "There's nothing concentrates nothing concentrates the mind so wonderfully, and as the knowledge that you'll be hung in the morning." <laughs> I love that, and that certainly is uh, what's happening to us. And you know, I was really fascinated too about you talking about uh, diversity but really moving much further than what people talk about with diversity in terms of going into the spiritual differences that make for really fascinating, but really important differences that we have to understand. You know, differences between a Muslim and, and a Hindi and all sorts of things like that. So how do we embrace it? It seems like we're dealing with things on a very superficial level with diversity at the moment. 
Well, diversity is only, as we are dealing with it, it's only relative to how much your interests and mine are being satisfied. It's relative to, to competition, to competitiveness, uh, and ability to, to deal a, a blow to others. So this kind of superficial, uh, superficial diversity is, is harmful. It's, it's really, it's disturbing, it's a disease. And the diversity that we need is that of a healthy body, a healthy organism. Healthy organs are made of all those different kinds of cells and, and billions of cells working together, not becoming the same. If you become this more or more or less the same, you have a cancer, but you're maintaining diversity. And that means a viable organism. So we need to flourish with and in diversity. And this is what is being challenged today. The ideal is to be, everybody wants to be the same. The superficial logic or philosophy of everyday life is that everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to have pleasures. Everybody wants to have sex or com comfort and, and whatever and power. And the rest is just idle talk. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the case. Um, obviously on the surface, we need to satisfy our immediate survival needs. Mm -hmm. People can be very different very, very different. And I try to show the, the map of cultural diversity in the world in the book also describe some of those differences. Mm -hmm. Don't let's oversimplify the human, human nature. Human nature on the bottom is a, is a nature of, of searching for maintaining itself amidst diversity and using diversity, making use of diversity. So that's the life force that we have in us, search for coherence among diverse entities. That's so interesting because as you say, I mean, <clears throat> we see it in the media in production companies, et cetera. It's, it's a money-making aspect to their message to the public about diversity. It is all about looking like they're, you know, uh, doing the popular thing and doing the woke thing to look like they have diversity, but it isn't real diversity. Um, and that is really an interest of mine too, because people talk about polarization and that being you know, worrisome. And one of the things that I've been doing with intention experiments is inviting so-called enemies to come together and do it together. And I have found something really fascinating that's gone on. I've done this with Muslims and Americans for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. I'd done it um, with Arabs and Israelis uh, to lower violence in Jerusalem. So hundreds or thousands of them coming together and doing this together. And it's so interesting, for instance, the Israelis and the Arabs were barely speaking beforehand. But after doing this 10 minutes of intention for a greater good, an altruistic act, the uh, Arabs were saying to the Israelis, you know, um, your God is my God. I love you, sister. And the others, the, the Israelis were saying the same thing back. And it happens every single time. I did it with Republicans and Democrats uh, for an intention before the, the last inauguration. And so one of the things that I'm interested in, and you mention in your book, is the power of altruism and community to really change things, to really 
bring out the best in humanity and to waken those latent cells that have been lying dormant. I mean, what I've found so much of in the intention experiments and certainly in the science surrounding what human beings really are is that you know we need to belong so desperately and we have many of these lofty qualities just innately within ourselves and they've been essentially crushed or diminished out of us any thoughts about any of that well i describe the evolutionary impetus which is which makes the difference in uh, the world is still not what it was after the big after the big bang which is a, a, a whole series of swirling inert gases, if it's a little more, if there's a little more coherence in the world than that, it's because there is something built into the laws of nature. It's, it's, it's an attractor. And I call it the holotropic attractor. Why? Because toward, it's toward wholeness. Wholeness means bringing separate, diverse elements together into a coherent relationship, creating wholes. A human body when it's healthy and a living body when it's healthy, it's a whole. A human a community, if it's healthy, it's a whole. The whole web of life, the whole Gaia system is a whole when, it, when it's thriving, when it's working well. So this is built in, uh, this is built, built into the universe that we are seeking. There is a search for, or, or put an attractor toward the, toward the attracting elements together to form larger holes, elements together to create systems and the systems with the other systems and so on, until the whole universe is a series of, of, of systems within and with systems, a hierarchy, of, a nested hierarchy. So mm -hmm. this is something built into the universe, I believe, and it's, and it's built into every, every, everything in the universe. There are attractions toward Toward what you call wholeness or oneness, attractions toward things diverse, things and elements working together and together creating units that are cohering in themselves. That's the difference between a mechanistic universe, between an impersonal and, and, and uh, uh, you know, non directional universe, a passive universe, and the one that we live in. Despite mm -hmm all these problems, all these, all the, all the recurrent periodic chaos and the disunity, the violence all that is occurring. There is a movement underneath, if you look at it, more and more elements are coming together. Now the whole discourse of what we do on this earth is moving toward a global level very quickly. We are moving, not only business, but politics is also moving. Whether we do it well or badly, we are now talking about all of the nations, or at least all 90% of the nations of the world coming together and doing things, trying to discuss things. It's, they are in contact now. The evolution of information helps us to be in contact. So there is now a, a level of activity which has moved from the local to the, to the regional community to the national, to the, to the super national regional community, to, to the global level. And there is something like a process of orderly organizing, ordering ourselves with all the problems, with all the challenges. There is a process of reordering the tenor, the tenor of human life on the planet. 
that is happening. If we don't destroy each other and their environment is continuous, and it is some kind of an order will emerge that will be a manageable order because we can't keep on this way, the system will break down. If it survives, it will survive at a higher level of order and coherence. And that is what is part of the universe. This is how galaxies are formed instead of just, just uh, swarms of, of nuclear particles swimming around the cosmic space. There are things, there's an Earth, is a remarkable coherent system. All that we see around us is the result of, of a holistic coherence being realized with all the problems that it has. So now the task before us to consciously grasp, embrace this search for coherence by feeling our oneness, feeling an unconditional kind of a love for each other, for all other things, so that we belong, we feel that we belong to each other and to the world at last. That kind of a change, that kind of transformation in the dominant mentality could change the way we behave in the world, that we behave differently if we belong to a family as if we are complete strangers. There are no strangers actually in the world. There is nobody who's outside of it. We are all part of it. And that is, could make a change. I don't see anything else, frankly, that will make a change. No, no giving commands from above. No enforcement, you know, uh, and the immediate selfish interest will not be satisfied by this. I mean, it's not as though if, if you do this immediately, you make more money or you make more power. No, you have to invest in it. But ultimately, if we seek this, the world will, humanity in the web of life will create itself a survivable order, a, 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 a thriving kind of a world. And we have to survive until then. We have to manage. We have to not avoid the breakdown, avoid the catastrophe, avoid putting a really violent means to defend our short-term interests, selfish interests. That's the chance, I think. We need to get a little, little breathing space so that we can create a new order on this world and not a Darwinian order, where it's only the survival of the fittest goes and not a pure mechanical system. It's a system, really which is oriented toward the oneness of different parts. That is nature, that is the nature of nature. And I think it's the nature of human beings as well. If you could only allow it to come forth. I think in your intention experiments, many of these elements come to the fore because you see that if you work with the right intentions, it works and you know that more than anybody else. If you work against the stream, then, it, then you are failing. If you go with the stream, with the force, with this holotropism, this tropism to a wholeness, I think things will pull together. I believe in that, I feel that, and I see that as the way forward and nothing else. So we're really talking about moving away from this whole idea of individualism and of course competitive individualism and embracing something else, ultimately universal love, um, how do you see this starting? I see it as small units, very small ground up units. And one of the things that I've been working a lot with is power of eight groups, just little groups of eight or so. It doesn't have to be exactly eight. Um, but finding that, and we've, you know, we've measured this with brainwave science and with a team of neuroscientists, that people experience a state of essentially ecstatic oneness 
when they're doing a little power of eight group, sending intention to somebody else. And that's the key, that seems to be the key element. And when we've seen the parts of the brain, what we've seen in these studies is parts of the brain that make us feel separate, like the parietal lobes and parts of the frontal lobes that uh, encourage worry, doubt, negativity, they're all dialed way down. So people do experience oneness. So this is very interesting thinking about this on much more of a global scale, even though I see it as a, and you, you seem to talk about these nested situations where I see it as small groups starting to create change locally and those moving on um, further still. So if altruism is at the heart of it, Irvin, then how do we change the, the way that businesses do things. I mean, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges we have because it's all predicated on stocks and shares, you know, shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. It's all predicated on money at all costs. Mm. Where do we start? Unfortunately, it needs to have a higher level of tension. It's already stress and tension is moving very much the challenge has to increase in a way for it to already to make a sudden basic fundamental change. And it would be very nice if we could shortcut that and say, okay, we use insight, we use, we use people's, uh, people's instincts, intuitions, and, and, and their better selves to activate. But if nothing else works, the breakdown will work. We are on a situation increasing and already extreme tension, high competition and high violence arising in, in most parts of the world. And when it, when it comes now to a rigorous winter in the Northern Hemisphere, it will challenge us some more because if people will be cold, they will be suffering. There'll be more and more trouble. This poverty, people affording less and less for the basic, basic comfort also. This we are moving toward a system breakdown now. The way to, to move past this is to awaken in the mind of some influential people. I don't mean influential in terms of money or unnecessary political power, but who can people can get together and, and talk and act differently. Your small groups, the small groups that Margaret Mead said that can change the world. If these come, come get together and start changing themselves and being that change themselves, I think this could spread quite fast because the system is under tremendous change, change and stress and challenge. If this was a more stable situation, I would see no chance. You know, re-educating leaders would take another generation or maybe several generations. How can we do it in time? Mm -hmm. The whole system is beginning to break down. The climate change is coming to it. A violent aggressor like we have today is creating a war and a tension situation in Europe and then worldwide actually contributes to the hastening of that change of, of the critical bifurcation point. We need to reach that tipping point without being physically broken down and without reaching a point of no return. So that's the big task before us, somehow to manage this. Yes. And in the meanwhile, yes, bring forth all the evidence we can talk to people, try to make sense in, so in as much as some people 
even on business leadership levels, they respond to, to, to making change, show that this system as such doesn't serve anybody's interests. It doesn't serve the business interest either. It's a question of who breaks down last rather than who, who can survive better. Yes, and I'm <clears throat> I'm wondering, my husband, Brian Hubbard, often has kicked around with me the whole idea of a new stock market, a stock market that actually rewards the good, not the profitable. And just wondering, what do you think about that? <coughs> So that a, a, a company doesn't get rewarded for making money. A company gets rewarded for actually providing something that is um, that, it, it, that benefits the climate, that benefits a community, that benefits something in terms of renewal. What if we totally restructured our stock market to do something like that? Well, it's a chicken and egg, you know, because we need to have new thinking to, to restructure it, and we need the restructure to have to create new thinking. We have to start it someplace. We have to start the challenge, this pressure will build up and we'll do one thing. Or insight and making sense, we also do something, you know. And the force of example, your groups that you're bringing together. My groups are trying to do a similar things, you know, with, with the upshift movement, which you can now get to the website and you can register your ideas. And then we try to bring these people together and create larger projects. And by looking at, at upshiftmovement.com, people can join without any charges. Just we are trying to bring the right far-sighted people, honest people, ethical people together to create a, a, a better world. These initiatives that you are doing, and there's a whole social media movement toward peace, toward sustainability, toward understanding. I mean, all of those things are happening. There is a new level of coherence about to surface. It's a surface here and here and there. It doesn't take over the, the, the governance of the system yet, the running of the system, but it's, it's cropping up here and there. And all, all these elements together will ultimately make a difference. But whether we make the difference without a breakdown or trying to make it after it's broken down, it depends what's the price of transformation. We can hasten the process, we can lower the price, and we can type and make it as smooth as possible. It's a nonlinear process, but it can be directed from the inside, not from the outside, not from above, but from down and from the inside. If things that you are doing it, that we are trying to do with the Laszlo Institute and with the upshift movement, if these would, would germinate, would catch on more and more in this era of critical fear and hopelessness as a ray of hope, as a possibility, if that would happen, I think we could make a transition, a transformation without undergoing a catastrophic breakdown first. That is the big challenge in front of us. Yes, uh, this is the thing. People don't really recognize how powerful they are, and particularly powerful even as a small collective. You know, we have so much power that think about it, think about the power of the purse. We have the power to say, no, I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to continue to follow this mindset. 
I love that term you use, hopeful monsters. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, it comes from biologists, from some biologists, population biologists. It turns out, you know, that there are changes happening all the time in the DNA of species. There's all the time evolution is taking place, but most of these changes are being eliminated in the, in, in the natural uh, competition for, for survival, for life. Now, it doesn't have to be a violent one, but there's a natural selection process. And, but there are some changes that are happening that are, don't get eliminated, and their time is not yet here because the changes don't pay off yet. They are more or less random changes. I don't think they're actually random, but I mean, they are not determined in advance. They, 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 they're coming about as a trial. And these trials are actually are not fitting the current system. They are monsters for the current system. They are not the norm. They are not understandable. But they could be, if there are such changes, that will pay off when the world itself is changing, you know, then they are hopeful. And they are, the hope is that the world will change such a way that they put them in a situation of survival, of flourishing. So hopeful monsters of today can be the leaders, the pioneers of tomorrow. And what we can do is try to be conscious hopeful monsters, become such kind of monsters that will have, be useful and necessarily a, a, a thought leader, a pioneer in the in a coming world, in a better world, adjusting ourselves to a better world, even before it comes here. If we do that together, then we'll promote the coming of that better world. And then we'll find ourselves together. This is what we are meant, meant to do. Now we are at home, but we must do it even before that kind of a situation comes about. That's why we are monster, but let's be a truly well-reasoned, rationally hopeful monster. I love that idea. Um, you also talk in the book about what people individually can do. And, you know, we started, and we've talked about starting small. Um, I want to just address a little bit about um, what a small group can do. I mean, I play around, as I mentioned, with the power of eight, with small group intention and people doing intention back and forth for each other's healing aspects of their life, like their health, their career, their finances, their relationships, their life's purpose. But I also work with groups to start healing their environment. So we've done intentions to improve rainfall, to, um, to end fires, to end all kinds of things, even a hurricane, I think. Um, we see a lot of that too, but these groups can also be instruments of change in their community where they just start out with eight and it becomes like a snowball that just keeps rolling as they start doing things. And we see so much of the time that a tiny group is, as you say, the Margaret Mead, the famous quote about the small groups, it's the only thing that ever does create change. It always starts small. So tell me some of the things that you would recommend for people, individuals to do, some of the things that they could do that could create a little avalanche of, you know, start tiny and create an avalanche of change, say in their community. I would say try different things. It's not so difficult to understand what's needed. 
to have a viable environment, to have a better, better feeling among people, more solidarity among people, trying to work together. All of those things around it, that everything that happening to us is a possible, gives us a possibility to improve on, to do it somehow better. But we've got to feel it. We have got to perceive it. It's feel, if it feels good, you're doing something and it feels good, it feels satisfying. Unless you're really a criminal mind, and I don't believe that many people are, if any, really evil. Normal people, you know, if you do something good, it feels satisfying. It feels, it feels good to do it. I remember a, a, a situation about 10 or 12 years ago. There was, a, I, I live in, in, in Italy now, in Tuscany, and there was a flood, there were floodings, and there were a very high rise in the river levels at one point. And then it went down again. And when it went down, uh, it, the, the river sites, the rivulet sites, the bushes were festooned with color. It's color plastic. And these were all plastic bags, color plastic bags that were carried by the flood, flooded to higher level. As the flood subsisted, they got stuck on the branches and there they were hanging around. So all of a sudden people said, my goodness, what's all these plastic bags here? They didn't realize it. They could have realized it, it was known, but nobody felt it, nobody actually seen it. And the result of that, as a great movement started uh, away from plastic bags uh, using paper and, and, uh, and, and cleaning up a little bit those river areas, those rivulets. So you have to feel it. It feels good to go like some people, like uh, uh, some Robert Mueller, for example, was an undersecretary general of the UN, you know, was a remarkable uh, pioneering man. He went always, whenever he went to a beach, even if it was a beach that was not highly populated, he would walk around and pick up, pick up plastic and pick up bottles and whatnot. And, it, and he felt that it was good for the day he did something, you know, in addition to doing a lot of things at the UN, of course, that was wonderful. But it feels good. If you don't feel that uh, 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 polluted environment, uh, filthy environment is, is a hurt, is a damage, is, is, is a wound on your own body. If you don't feel that, you're not really going to build it up to do something. You say, well, it'll be taken care of. It'll be rationalized somehow. So, so somebody else has to do that. Sooner or later, we will do it. Why should I do it? If you feel yourself engaged, feel it in your guts and the feeling that deep down that you have to do something. It's good to do something positive. Then you find a way. So much you can do. Buy the right products. Try to contribute to the to designing the right products, to selling them, to marketing them, to reading the, the kind of literature that helps people to pull together. Many things change the mindset. We need a new paradigm, a new way of thinking. That is the key, I think. Otherwise, we'll talk about it. Otherwise, we'll postpone it. We'll try to delegate it. And the, the situation will worsen more and more. We've got to get a new mindset. Young people, yes, there's a great hope is there, you know, but open people and all positions that they start really feeling the world differently. I say feeling the world, not just thinking, feeling the world differently. It has to come, that is part of human nature to adapt to the world around us and to adapt the world to us. So I think I'm optimist in the longer run. I just see in the short run, 
the next several years, you have got to manage in such a way that there's no serious breakdown. Then this new mentality will arise, it's already arising. You've got to give it a push. You've got to assist it, promote it, and manage ourselves without violence, without undue competition, without harming each other. That's the lesson we have got to learn and to live like that. Yes, you mentioned about upshifting up people's spirituality, their own spirituality. Is that part of it, or are you thinking of something more? Upshifting spirituality in the sense that taking it more seriously. We all have this, as you do with your experiments, you find deep down, we all find this, this aiming for working together, for being coherent with each other and with the world. Deep down, we have it. We have to, we have to access it. We have to move down to the everyday life, to the level of the theta, e.g. waves, whereby we, have, we, we recognize a deeper uh, unit, unity, a deeper oneness binding us together, which we can now be confirmed through quantum sciences, which shows about how we are, how we are really on various levels, subliminal levels, also joined to each other. You know? So if we can just get that mindset going, with the discussions that we are having here, that you all keep having in your programs, and I'm trying to get a talk show on, on these topics as well, on the upshift, uh, upshift conversations. I mean, these are the things that we can try to do already, being the change and talking about it so, and involving others in the conversation so that they too can be the change. That I think is the great task before us. Absolutely, and I think what I wanna leave us with also is the idea that we have much more power than we recognize. You know, much of what you've been talking about, Irvin, many of the things that I talk about are the hidden abilities, the hidden forces we have within us that have been neglected, not only the power to create through the power of intention, but also so many other latent capacities and we also have, as you've talked about it, the inherent goodness of the human spirit. It's all there. It's been crushed. It's been latent. It's been minimized through the way we live our lives. But we can invite it to come to the fore. Um, when I was trying to look at whether Darwin was right in my book, The Bond, um, and discovered he definitely isn't, I found so much evidence that we need to give we need to belong, we need to connect. So we need to access this, as you say, through a new mindset, a new spirituality. So I know you have to leave. Um, Irvin, it's been wonderful spending time with you. I just want everybody to know his book is called The Upshift and to make sure to get hold of your copy. Check out his website for joining these upshift Groups, would you mention that website again, Irvin? Well, there are several websites. You can look at my name, irvinlazlo.com. You can look at the Upshift also uh, on Amazon, you have all the information. And you have the Upshift Movement, upshiftmovement.com, where you can join and participate, giving your own ideas of what is needed. And then we try to put, put together people who think alike, who want to help each other and make empower them in the any way that we can. So please join these movements, Lin's movements, mind movement, and many similar movements 
of creating small groups that will spread, that will grow, grow, come together, and that will create the change that we need in this world. Thank you so much, Irvin. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Lynn McTaggart helping you to live the new science. Keep listening, and I'll continue to give you information and tips each time about how to incorporate this new science into your everyday life. Take care now. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Lynn. This is Lynn McTaggart helping you to live the new science. Keep listening and I'll continue to give you information and tips each time about how to incorporate this new information into your life. And don't forget to check out the courses I'm running on new thought and intention. We're just kicking off our latest course for professional practitioners of all sorts called Become a Better Healer with the Power of Eight, which starts November 5th. I show you how your thoughts and words and your patient's thoughts and words are actually your most potent medicine and how to harness both to boost your healing success rate. To find out more or book your place, go to lynnmctaggart.com and follow the link under courses for Become a Better Healer. Thanks so much. And I hope to hear from you soon. Bye.